Definitely my, one of my all-time favorite Christmas movies that ever have come out. I've been watching it, of course, since I was a kid. Uh, Misfits. Uh, the message I'm going to be sharing this morning is a part of the Christmas story, but it's actually the one passage of all of the Christmas passages that I've avoided teaching for years. And the reason is because it's a misfit passage, so to speak. It's one of those things that even last night, after first first telling of this story last night, some folks walked away and were like, well, that was odd. But I don't know what else to tell you. It's part of the Christmas story. It's just the misfit of all the misfit Christmas stories. But it's by intention because Matthew's the one writing it. And we looked at last week how Matthew was a misfit. As a matter of fact, he was a misfit of misfits. All of Jesus' disciples were misfits in society in a sense because here Jesus is, a a rabbi, a very well-known, well-respected rabbi in his culture, and he's calling on these local fishermen to become his disciples, his followers, to become future rabbis. That was just unheard of. You didn't do that. So much so that in Acts chapter 4, when John and Peter are talking with the religious elite, they, they make this comment about them. It says, it's kind of odd. These guys are unschooled, ordinary guys. In other words, they're not a part of our class. What are they even doing here having a conversation? How can they even debate us? And that's the group of disciples Jesus had. Well, among that group of disciples, the most outcast of that group, of course, was Matthew. Because Matthew was, as we looked at this past Sunday, uh, similar in our day and time as a corrupt politician. He was a tax collector who, part of the whole process back then in the day, was you would all automatically, if you were a tax collector, the only way to be a tax collector, the only reason to be a tax collector is because you were corrupt. You were skimming off the top, charging people more in taxes than what they owed, which we all love when people do that, and then taking it for himself. And so that's who Matthew is. And he sets off to tell the story about who Jesus Christ was and what he has done. And of course, uh, Matthew does this, and Mark does this, Luke does this, and John does this. Matthew, though, starts with the genealogy. And the reason is because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And for the religious elite out there, they're going to want to know that if Jesus truly is the Messiah, he would have to be a descendant of both Abraham and of David. Because God promised Abraham that I will bless all nations through you, and through you all nations will be blessed. And he also promised David that one day when he would send the Messiah, when he would send his son to the earth, he would be in both the kingly line of David and also of the bloodline of David. And so Matthew sets out to show that he is of the kingly succession of David. But along the way, he adds a few other details. He kind of adds in a few extra things in there that really don't need to be a part of the story. If you're just trying to connect Jesus back to David and to Abraham, you don't really need to add these extra details. And the extra details, quite honestly, are the embarrassing part. It's the people that don't really fit with the story or fit with the narrative of what you would expect. Uh, Along the way, you'll have people in here who are from another race, people from bad reputations, uh, people who've done a lot of shameful things. And you look at them and you say, why would you add them in here? And the answer would be, well, because they are a part of his family tree. But more importantly, it's because they're the point Matthew's trying to make in telling the family tree also. Now, back in Matthew's time, just as in our own, there's always this idea, I don't know whether we, we, we would say as good Christian people, we don't believe in karma, but we kind of do, really. We still have this idea that if you're good, then God loves you. If you're bad, then God doesn't. And even though we might believe that we can get back in God's good graces, we kind of have to earn our way back in, kind of like, that's why kids are really good right before Christmas, right? Trying to butter you up for the presents, right? Because if you're better, then maybe you'll be more kind. We kind of think it's that way with God, that my status or my standing with God uh, is all about 
all the good things that I've done and all the bad things I've avoided doing. And at some point, we kind of have this sense that if we've done enough bad things, then maybe, just maybe, we're beyond God's love. And I even hear people say stuff like this. You, you, you may not be at that place, but there are people out there who just think, after what I've done and who I am, there's no way God could ever love me. And it was the same way back in Matthew's time. And so he sets out to sort of give you the, I don't know, misfit of the misfit, the worst of the worst. I, there's a reason why daytime TV is what it is. And even nighttime TV, I guess even nowadays too, with what they call reality TV. I mean, the reason why people watch the Jersey Shore is because you think to yourself, well, at least our kids didn't turn out quite like that, right? I mean, I may not be the best parent, but I'm not that, right? Or you might watch other shows like Mari Povich, Dr. Phil, Jerry Springer, right? And all the guests that come out on there in some way, shape, or form make you feel just a little bit better about yourself, don't they? I mean, come on, no matter how messed up your family is this Christmas season, you're not that, right? You can always find something worse out there, at least if you watch the right shows. Or, you know, I might be a little bit dysfunctional of a wife, but I'm not one of the real housewives of whatever city they're doing right now, because it doesn't matter whether you're Atlanta or LA or wherever, there's some crazy, whack housewives out there. I'm not in that category, right? Well, Matthew, in a sense, in telling the Christmas story, sort of does just that. And it's a picture basically saying is, if all of these people who are absolutely worthy of being on the Jerry Springer show are a part of Jesus' family line, and he's not ashamed to have them to be a part of his family, then maybe, just maybe, what it says over in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 is true about you and me, that he's not ashamed to have any one of us in his family as well. And he talks in there in Hebrews chapter 2 about how he has, he has made us holy by his holiness. In other words, he has taken his, his life, he has given his holy life, his perfect life, and he's given it to us, he's imputed it to us. Basically, when God looks at you and he looks at me, he doesn't see our past and the sinful things and the mistakes we've made. What he sees is Jesus Christ. And in the same way, he says, I want to make sure you know that I'm not ashamed of who my family is. And so he goes through and talks about who his family is. And so as we're going to read through here, you're going to see he starts off and he, and he gives, you know, this person was a dad to this person, this person was a dad to this person. And most of the time you just skip over these long genealogical lists. However, he does a few things in here, what we would call a pattern disrupt, where he pauses for a moment and adds a detail. And if you're a Bible nerd, you'd pick up on it. If you're not, you just read over it. Well, I'm a Bible nerd, so I pick up on it and I want to share with you what all is in here that you may have missed. And so he says in there, he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. That's what the religious elite wanted to know. However, he's going to include everything else in here for the non-religious elite like you and me. And so he says, so Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. It's kind of interesting. Why mention his brothers? Brothers weren't a part of the family line. And he goes on and says, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Well, which one really matters? Is it Perez or Zerah? Because both of them can't be in Jesus' lineage. He says, well, let me first tell you that their mother was Tamar, but it was Perez who was the father of Hezron, and he goes on from there. So why mention this other brother, Zerah, and why mention all these other brothers of Judah? Well, funny you should ask. Maybe you're not asking, I'm asking for you. Uh, over in Genesis 37 and 38, we, we have the story of Judah. Now, it was kind of odd for me because I grew up in church, and we used to sing songs about Jesus, how about Jesus was the Lion of Judah, and, you know, Lion of Judah, that sounds great. You would think that if Jesus is from, you know, the, the, the family tree of Judah, it must be a really good family tree, right? Uh, also, if you know a little bit more about Israel history, you'll see that 
Israel was 12 tribes, and eventually what happened is 10 of the tribes broke off in a very sinful direction, but two stayed true down in the south. One of those two tribes was the tribe of Judah. So I always had a really good impression of Judah until I went back and actually read about Judah. And right here in the genealogy, Matthew wants to point out not the good part about Judah, not the part of Judah where they were one of the faithful tribes and his descendants, not the part of Judah where Jesus is considered the Lion of Judah, but rather the two stories we have in Genesis about the life of Judah. One of them is in Genesis chapter 37. Um, now, the major characters in the book of Genesis, you have Abraham, then his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and then his son Joseph. Well, one of Joseph's brothers was Judah. And then what happens in chapter 37 is Judah and his brothers get quite jealous over Joseph because Joseph was the favorite son of their dad. So their dad, Jacob, ends up making this colorful coat for Joseph. Maybe some of y'all heard of the Broadway uh, show, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, coat of many colors, whatever you want to say. Most kids in that day and time, uh, their coats were one of three colors, black, brown, or beige. <laughs> and here Joseph is, he's got this fancy coat with all these pretty colors on it, and his brothers hated him for it. They hated his brother's attitude, they hated Joseph and how much he was loved by their dad, and they always felt like as if they're the ones who have to go out and work, and Joseph gets all the easy assignments. So they resented him for it. So one day, and it says in, chapter, in Genesis 37, Judah and his brothers decided that they were sick and tired of their brother, and they were going to kill him, as every good brother would do. And so, but they actually meant it. And so they, when Joseph came along in his little pretty coat out there while they're out in the field working, they grabbed him, they ripped off his coat, and they threw him into a dry well to try to figure out what to do. They weren't sure if they were going to drop something on his head, what they were going to do. But as they're in the middle of having lunch, uh, they see this band of uh, traders coming along on their way to Egypt. And then Judah stands up and he goes, hey, I got an idea. We don't get anything out of this if we kill him. Then we'll just have like the guilt of having killed our brother on our hands. What if we sold him as a slave and that way we can get some money out of it and we're not that bad of people because we didn't actually kill him, right? Yeah, it makes sense, right? So Judah leads his brothers into this idea, and that's what they do. They sell Joseph as a slave, and he gets taken off over to Egypt. But what do you tell dad? Well, no problem. We've already got his coat. What we'll do is we'll just kill an animal. We'll put the blood of the animal all over the coat, and then walk back to dad and go, hey, we found this coat. It looks like Joseph got attacked. We haven't found him. He must have gotten eaten. And that's exactly what they do. And you can imagine how much that broke their father's heart. And Judah and his brothers... Never tell dad what happened. They just live with that secret. And so when he says, was the father of Judah and his brothers, he's specifically pointing out, you remember the story of Judah and his brothers and what they did? But if that wasn't bad enough, that's actually, I don't know if that's actually the worst thing Judah ever did. I don't know. Maybe the next story would be the worst thing that Judah ever did. I don't know. But to get you ready for that story... Um, we're going to take a little break. we got kids in the room, and I know it's hard for them all to sit still. We've given them some silly putty that they can play with. Um, so what I want to do is in front of your seat, actually, if you're up here in the front, if you guys could get these red buckets right here, you can just take a few of these out. Uh, in your seat pocket in front of you, you'll find some snowballs. <gasps> yeah, yeah, it's Christmas Day. All right. Um, no, no, what are you doing throwing? We're not throwing snowballs. Nobody said to throw snowballs. Yet, now in the Old Testament, um, <laughs> I guess we're bringing in, re oh, oh, they were going to actually hand out the bucket. Sorry about that. I went ahead and did that too quick for them. Um, now in the Old Testament, what did they do to sinners? 
Stoned them. Yeah, let's stone them, all right? So um, if you could, um, I think there's plenty of sinners here in this room if you just look around. So if you could, find somebody who's worthy of it. And on the count, we're going to count down, and then we're going to let them have it, all right? In T minus five, four, three, two, one. sheet, that's great. If not, just throw them up here on stage. Either way. But hang on to one. That's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. All right. Uh. <laughs> now, later on, we are doing a candlelight service, and if you go to pick up a candle and you get a snowball, that's a mistake. Because um, I think some of them end up in the candlelight box. <sighs> All right, back to the story. So it says you've got Judah, who was the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Well, who's Tamar? It's kind of like kind of odd. It's the first woman mentioned in the group. Uh, well, Tamar was actually married to Joseph or to uh, Judah's son. And at this point, you're going Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Uh, but it's not quite what you think. It's kind of worse, but it's not quite what you think. Uh, what happened, though, was Judah's son passed away. Everybody say, aww. So Tamar was left all alone. But in their culture, it's okay because uh, the family that you married into would be the one who would be there to provide for you and care for you. And so Judah goes to her and he says, that's okay. Um, I'll join you up together with my other son. And so sure enough, Judah's other son, his second oldest son, ends up marrying Tamar. You go, yay, yay. But he's such a bad guy, he dies because of his sins too. Oh. 
So now she's left all alone. Judah says, well, that's okay. I've got a third son, but he's only in eighth grade right now. And although a middle schooler, he would love to get married at this age. He's not going to. He's got to get a little older first. And so if you'll just hang out and wait till he gets older, then I will give my youngest son to you. And she says, well, okay. Well, she waits and she waits and she waits. And then she all of a sudden hears from somebody else, hey, did you know Judah's youngest son just got married the other day? Now, what do you say again? Oh, she's been forgotten. She's been left out. Now, in that day and time, in that culture, if you were a single woman, and you, you see a lot of the, the, this phrase in the Old Testament and even the New Testament talk about widows and orphans. Because in their culture, they had no provision to care for widows and orphans. There weren't any government programs. Uh, there weren't any benevolent people who would come along and just care for them. And so if you were a woman, you were unemployable because it was a male-dominated society and women didn't have jobs. There weren't a lot of options for you if you were a single woman who was not eligible to be married to anybody else. And having been already married and been a widow... Uh, she wasn't exactly the kind of person people were looking to go out and marry. And so she didn't have a whole lot of options. Quite oftentimes, they would end up working in an escort service. That's probably the best way I can explain what she was about to go do uh, here on Christmas Eve. And so she's looking at her options, and she realizes that that's her only option. And Judah really should be the one caring for her. Uh, she hears that Judah's wife has also passed away. And so what she does is she goes and disguises herself as an escort over in the area of town where Judah works looking just for him, and sure enough, Judah sees her. Totally doesn't even recognize her. That's how long it's been since he's paid her any mind or any attention. Doesn't recognize her. I'm sure she's veiled. And because Judah's the kind of guy that Judah is, he goes and he hires the escort. Everybody go, ooh, yeah. Well, the going price that day, I don't understand it, but the going price back in that day was a goat. But... <laughs> Not many people walk around town with a goat on them, and so he says to her, he's like, listen, I know I owe you a goat, I don't have a goat, um, how about I pay you back? And she's like, well, you know, you got to give me something to make sure you know you're going to come back. And so uh, he gives her a signet ring and his walking stick, which were kind of a, pictures of, you know, sort of a, it's sort of like his driver's license, if you will. So at the following day, Judah has one of his servants, he goes, hey, you need to go into town, uh, there's a girl there as an escort, uh, you get, she, I owe her a goat, don't ask what for, I just, I owe her a goat. Uh, and she's got some stuff in mind. Go ahead and get that and bring that back. Well, he goes in town. He can't find her. And he comes back. He's like, I can't find her, man. What do I do? And he's like, well, I don't really want to be the guy going into town every day with a goat looking for an escort. So if she don't ask anything, I'm just going to call it, you know, what's lost is lost. Well, a few months pass by. And word gets back to Judah that Tamar, the widow of his sons, is pregnant. And everybody go, ooh. And he knows she hasn't been remarried. So what do you think a guy like Judah, who is living with the guilt and the shame of what he's done for having sold his brother many years ago off as a slave, living with the guilt and the shame of having told his dad that his brother was killed by wild animals and kept that lie in his heart to this day, then is the kind of guy who goes out and hires an escort when he's off at work, what do you think a guy like that would do when he's confronted with a situation like this? He does what every one of us would do who's gotten away with our own sin by cover-up. We get real self-righteous, acting like as if we don't have any issues like that, like as if we've never done anything wrong. And he says, oh my goodness, she has defamed my family name. She has dishonored all of us for what she's done. She deserves to die just like every other sinner doing something like this. And so instead of having her, ordering her to be stoned, he wants her burned alive. Yeah. 
Well, on the day in which he's, he, he rallies all the community behind it, and they're all feeling sympathy for him, and on the day this is about to happen, she gives one of these servants the signet ring and the walking stick and says, go and give these to Judah and tell him that the one who got me pregnant who deserves to be out here with me owns these things. So the servant's like, okay. Walks up and he goes to Judah. He's like, hey, she said the guy who deserves to be with her out here is the owner of these things. Do you know what she's talking about? I don't know what she's talking about. Mm. And it's in that moment that all of a sudden Judah realizes what's really happening and what's happened. And he goes to her and he says, you know, you are far more righteous than I. Because instead of turning to this life and going down this path, you did whatever you could to still be a part of my family. And I pushed you to this place. And that's my fault. And he finally takes ownership for what he's done. And so Matthew puts all this stuff in there. And it's kind of gritty. And it's kind of cringy. But, he, but just think about this. This is a part of the family that Jesus was born into. And he includes all of this sinful stuff in his lineage. And then Matthew continues on, on with, the, with the rest of the story. He goes on and he says, um, so, per, uh, by the way, she had twins, Perez and Zerah. That's why they're both mentioned in there. And just let you know, this is actually, was actually from this, this night, this union, that this all happened. And so she has twins. But it was Perez who became the father of Hezron, and Hezron who became the father of Ram, and Ram who became the father of Benadab, and Abinadab who became the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Huh, interesting. Why mention Rahab? Well, Rahab was actually a foreigner. Uh, she was a resident of the city of Jericho. Now, uh, after Moses led the Israelite people out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, they went out into the wilderness for a little while, eventually Moses passes away after 40 years, and it's now Joshua who's going to lead the people into the promised land finally. Well, the first major fortified city of the promised land that they were going to take was the city of Jericho had a massive wall around it, which in that day and time was like having an impenetrable defense. So how are they ever going to get through it? Well, Joshua sends two spies into the city. This is in Joshua chapter 2. And while they're in the city, uh, the city wouldn't be very too hospitable to spies coming in to invade and destroy your city. So they hide out in Rahab's place. Um, let's say we've got a mixed audience here. Rahab ran an escort service, if you will, out of her home. And that's what she was known for. She was Rahab the escort, if you will. So that's where they hid out. Well, the men of the city find out and think that there might be some spies there. So they go and they knock on Rahab's door and say, are there any spies in here? And she says, well, they were here, but they left. They went that away. Well, in reality, they're hiding up on her roof. And so she sends them away. And she goes to the spies and they're like, why did you do that for us? And she says, listen, I believe that your God has given you this land. I believe that your God is the one true God. Everybody in this city is terrified of them. And I don't put any faith whatsoever in my walls. I put my faith in your God because I know if, he's gonna, if he wants this, he can do all things. And so they look at her and they see the faith of this foreigner, this woman who's running this escort service, and they say, you know, because of the kindness that you've shown to us and the faith that you have in our God, anybody else who shares this same faith of yours, that you get in your house when we come to take this city, will be spared. So put a scarlet cord out your, at your window so we'll all know which place is yours. And everybody that's in your household is going to be saved when we come and take the city. And if you go over a couple chapters over to chapter, chapter 6, uh, there you see that Rahab and everybody in her household is spared. Well, Rahab ends up becoming a part of the Israelite community, and eventually she marries uh, this guy Salmon, and she and Salmon have a son named Boaz. And so you've got Rahab, who was a former escort, 
who is now also into the family lineage of Jesus. Well, they have a son named Boaz. Boaz is an amazing guy. Uh, he becomes a, a wealthy landowner. Um, and one day, uh, this girl named Ruth, you can read about this in the book of Ruth. Ruth uh, was a Moabitess. Now, Moab was a city or an area next to it over in Jordan. And the Moabs and the, or the Moabites and the Israelites were arch enemies. Uh, in the same way in the New Testament, you read about Samaritans and, and Jews, a very similar kind of thing. The Moabites and the Israelites did not like each other. However, Ruth ends up marrying an Israelite guy, um, and he passes away. And so Naomi, which was this Israelite guy's mother, says to her, listen, you go back to your country and to, to Moab and f- try to find you know, a better life there. I'm going to head back home. My life is miserable. And she says this amazing statement where he says, listen, I'm with you for life, basically. She says, your people are my people, and your God is my God. Wherever you go is where I will go. And so Ruth says, I'm not going to let you go through this life alone. It's really hard as a single woman, as a single widow. We both are now, and let's do this together. And so they head back into Israel to try to make a life for themselves. There's not a lot of options, as we mentioned earlier. And so one day, they're out sort of picking up the scraps left over by the harvesters. Uh, It turns out to be that they're picking up the scraps from the field of a guy named Boaz. And Naomi looks and she says, you know, Boaz is actually a distant relative. And in the same way that Judah was charged to care for Tamar, it would be up to the family to, commit to, to care for someone like Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so she says to him, he actually is what we would call a kinsman redeemer, uh, that he could come in and he could take us in and make us a part of his family, and then we wouldn't have to live in poverty anymore. And sure enough, that's exactly what Boaz does. Boaz decides to marry her. He doesn't just take care of her, but actually decides to marry her. And it's this beautiful thing of what he does in this relationship that, that forms out of that. And so now so far, to recap the list, you've got Judah and the stuff that he did with his brothers. You've got Judah and what happened with Tamar. Uh, you've also got Rahab and where she came from. And then you've got Ruth, who shouldn't even be a part of the story because she was a foreigner. And then he goes on and he says, and well, uh, Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, or sorry, mother was Ruth, uh, was the father of Obed, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of, here it is, King David. Now, even if you've never been to church, what do we know about David? As a little boy, he fought a giant, and it was David and Goliath. If you don't know this, though, David goes on to be the greatest king in all of Israel. When God promised to give the Israelites this land, there was a, there was a parameters that God promised to give them. Only under David's reign under David's leadership, did they ever actually experience uh, commanding control of all of that area? Uh, it was only under his time, and actually him and his son's time, but it was David that conquered all of that area finally, uh, once and for all. It was only under David where they had any time of peace at all in their land. David was the greatest king uh, of the Israelite history. He's the one that God promised to one day send his son into his day and time, or into his lineage. However, he didn't just stop with King David. He goes on and he says this. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And everybody goes, hmm? Like, what, come again? Well, who was Uriah? Well, before David ever became king, David was an outlaw out in the countryside. Uh, God had t- promised him he would become king. However, Saul was king at the time. And so David was out in the wilderness fending for himself. And a group of guys came around him. Uriah was one of them. And they were known as David's mighty men. So his 30 closest friends uh, that came around him basically said, life for life, brother for brother, we're in this to the end. And even though nobody believes that you're the next king, even though nobody believes in you, we do. 
So Uriah was one of those 30 guys. Well, years later, when David does become king, and Uriah and all the other mighty men are out fighting a battle, David gets kind of bored, sees Uriah's wife, and I think you all know how this all ends. However, what ends up happening, though, is because David wants to be with Uriah's wife so badly, he ends up having Uriah killed. So you can add to the list not just the relationship he had with Uriah's wife, but also the fact that he has Uriah killed. And here is Matthew, in the middle of our Christmas Eve, having to bring all this stuff up. Why? I mean, can't you just stop at the fact that he's the king, right? I mean, everybody, when everybody does like one of those 23andMe's or does any of those genealogical studies, aren't you hoping to find somebody famous in your genealogical record? But famous good, not famous bad, right? Like, you want to find out you're related to royalty. Like, I didn't realize I actually am a distant descendant of the king of Genovia. Some of y'all get that. Some of y'all don't. That's okay. Don't ask me why I know that. Um, I have kids. I have girls. Uh, I have a girl. Uh, anyways, you don't want to find out, though, that you are a distant relative of Lee Harvey Oswald, right? You don't want to find that out. You, you want to find out that you are a part of something good. And so right when you get to the best part of the genealogy, Matthew makes sure he points out the worst part of it, too. Why? Why highlight all of this stuff? I mean, you've got, ooh, icky, eh, ooh, throughout this whole list. Why? Well, the one thing all these people have in common is they're all misfits, if you will. They're all outsiders when it comes to a relationship with God. The religious elite would have excluded all of these people along the way. And what Matthew's trying to show is that every single one of these has a standing and a place in God's family in the same way you and I have a standing in God's family. It's all through grace. Even the best of the people on the list, a guy like David, here's a guy that God called a man after my own heart. Here's a guy who wrote the book of Psalms. That is basically his prayer life, his songs that he wrote up to God about how much he loved God. Even a guy like David needs grace. Of course, somebody like Rahab would need grace, but even a guy like David would also need grace. And what he's trying to communicate to each and every one of us is at Christmas, it's a reminder that we all come before God in grace. And he's not ashamed to have any one of us come to his family and come to his table because of grace. So Christmas is ultimately about God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to bring us grace for you and for me. We join with me as we close our time in prayer. God, I thank you for the grace that you've shown us this Christmas. I thank you, Lord, that you don't just accept the perfect and the righteous, but even the most perfect and righteous among us, like King David, are still in need of grace. I thank you for including all of the misfits in this story that we might know because of your grace. We all have a place and we all fit with you. We thank you for this and in Jesus' name, amen.